Welcome everybody, this is uh, Karamjit Singh from uh, Digital News Asia and this is our Tech Talk show only on Lidonomics FM. And with me is uh, Tanji, who just came back from Singapore and I think he's got an interesting story about how women are further making their mark in the world. And then we've got Zoff, who's going to talk about uh, how Sarawak hopes to be the shining example for Malaysia as we evolve towards a digital economy. But first, I'm going to kick off the show. And by the way, you're not going to hear my voice after my segment because I have a meeting I need to go for and that kind of uh, clash with this. So anyway, we're starting now with... So this company we call is, uh, is uh, Capgemini. And it's it apparently one of... It's actually the world's second ranked uh, robotic process automation company. And they have picked a Mala their, their Malaysian outfit which, which runs you know, uh, Southeast Asia and I think uh, another country, Korea, there's a bit of an odd reach there. Uh, so they, they service these countries out of Malaysia where they've got 500 headcount. Now, very quietly, they've built a team of 500 strong here. And they feel that Malaysia has got all it takes to be a, a center of excellence for robotic process automation. Now, it's RPA, the acronym, you will probably start hearing this a bit more. And also, during the media event, I think, uh, uh, G, you were there. They also used the word higher level of automation, right? So, it's a higher level of automation, and it's, it's but the sexy name is RPA. So, now, what, what's happening is that they, they, the reason why they picked Malaysia is because they said they're already doing very good business in Malaysia in terms of RPA. There's strong interest, there's already demand, and, and their business in Malaysia has been growing, right? Double-digit percentage growth year yeah. on year. They think this is going to be another growth growth market for them. And then they also said that Malaysia has got a strong graduate pool. And they mentioned like 200,000 graduates coming out. Mind you, when people say a graduate pool, they don't just talk about people at the de degree level, also diploma and even certificate, you know, is considered the graduate level. Because one of the stories we did recently was on the premier digital tech institution, right? And we actually, there's a very good download there. We shared the link to a PDF that the Ministry of Education does call their, their Tracer Study, T-R-A-C-E-R. And there's got very good data on, on graduates coming out from all the various, you know, uh, states uh, and, and fields also, right? right? And the number of graduates. So that's kind of interesting. So it's about, it's actually slightly less than 200,000. But for, to them, they say there's a pool of 200,000 graduates coming out that they can train. Say mm -hmm. the skill set for RPA is not yet there in schools, in universities or, or polytechs. But they can be trained up. So I found that interesting. And the third thing they said is that, you know, we've got a, 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 a very cost-effective and world-class infrastructure in Malaysia, right? right? And I think they mentioned four assets of Malaysia. I, I kind of forget what the third, fourth one is. Of course, I scrolled down into my article or so. Do you remember that offhand, G? Uh, no, in, not infrastructure. Quite, okay, that's fine. I'm putting you on the spot, but I, I just thought you had a better memory than me. So now I'll come to you. So anyway, the RPA market is growing big. And so they've partnered, by the way, with uh, a, a company called Blue Prism. Blue Prism is a British company set up, started out in the UK in 2001 by a couple of, by about three process engineers. And so they're all about process because if you start getting to know RPA a bit better, you know that RPA actually comes in and this main value proposition, it comes in and handles mundane tasks. As G so eloquently put it in his article, right? It's like you imagine an RPA as a kind of a metaphorical uh, uh, employee, uh, employee called, co-worker called Steve, right? Okay. Lucky you didn't call him Singh, uh, Mr. Singh. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, so, and they do menial and oh, not so much menial, but maybe they do repetitive and boring tasks. And so if you automate that, According to both Blue Prism and, and Capgemini, the executives, right? Blue Prism, I think we spoke to uh, uh, Bill Taylor 
and then with Cap Gemini, it was uh, uh, Sumit Nurpuri and also uh, another gentleman uh, who's running their, you know, who's head of sales. But both of them said that uh, in the example of, uh, in the experience of, of executing RPA for companies, they find that companies actually don't use that an excuse to to cut headcount, which I thought was very interesting, right? Yeah, G? yeah. Because uh, I I I think that's the thing, right? When mm-hmm. you automate a process, doesn't mean you eliminate the work. But there is that fear already out there, right? Yeah. Even among us, if we were honest I mean, about it, that I, I think companies are going to use I, that I as mean, a chance. I'm yeah. I'm just going to interrupt here because yeah. otherwise you never hear my voice. <laughs> <laughs> but but. And so this is a very interesting thing that they've raised, you know, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, robots and robotics has yet to become a dirty word here in Malaysia. Oh, okay. um, you would, you can sort of see a version of the future where it becomes a political issue where uh-huh. people are saying, because of robots, I'm losing my job. And right. it, it sounds like this is something that's made, a point that is made to sort of cut yep. short that sort okay. of discussion. Yeah. Now, what from what I read, the research goes both ways. Mm-hmm. Okay. That one, repetitive mundane jobs are going to be picked up by uh, by, by robots yes, yeah, and automation. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a robot. You go into your McDonald's now, you you now you don't have to interact with a human being to, to make your order, right? Yeah. And that's not quite what this is, but this yep. is uh, taking place of that. Yes. But the flip side is, of course, that uh, as, as uh, Kara mentioned earlier, there is going to be a huge demand, at least mm-hmm. in the short term, for people who can manage yes. and repair yes. and yes. control yes. and yes. do all Absolutely. the things necessary. Of course, until robots take over those jobs. Yes, 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 <laughs> robots yes. that repair robots, right? <laughs> right. Um, but I mean, do you sense? Do you sense that this is something that is like a point made to preempt this kind of criticism, or is it just is there something it's, more? Is to there it? Uh, okay? That's a good question. But I feel like because uh, when they when they talk about RPA, yep. is that the kind of automation they provide is to I mean, like we mentioned earlier, to remove all the mundanity. So, but I, I guess what Blue Prism and uh, Capgemini says is that say if you sort of let's say Steve the robot works for HR and he processes mundane things like claims yeah. he manages uh, Leave, you know leaves right, yeah. right? Like these are all things that take up time for the HR manager yeah. and what it frees the, the time frees up for the HR manager to do things that are more meaningful that Automation can't handle, so like making better policies, uh, planning, inclusive, uh, right, inclusivity, yeah. uh, uh, making sure you have diverse hiring, or sort of like uh, doing things that the robots can't do. But at the same time, having the robots take away your mundane jobs, so you don't have to worry about those aspects anymore. You have time to do things that like, it's more fulfilling, at least in a employee perspective. Yeah. Interesting. So I th- I think to answer your question also, it's definitely been the experience on the ground. And, and I think they gave some examples also. Right. And you know, when you talk about RP expertise, uh, uh, Cap Gemini out of 250,000 strong headcount, which is huge, right? I, I didn't know they were that big. Uh, they have 7,000 RPA experts and they've actually built 4,000 bots. So that's interesting because they said that this RPA wave is is still new, right? Globally, yeah? not just uh, not just in Malaysia, it's still new, and companies are beginning to see the value and have conversations around that. Which is why they also include, in, you know, they decided to make Malaysia the center of excellence, and they've introduced this certification. If you t- go through the uh, the RPA certification from Blue Prism, it's about two hundred and sixty-five hours uh, across five certification modules, and you want to look at a comparison according to Bill Taylor. Uh, of course, he's from uh, Bill, uh, Blue Prism. He said that he has actually sat for the certification of some of their competitors. I wouldn't even call him competitor because he said you can do an online test 
that takes a total of 90 minutes and you become RPA certified. Mm. Now, do you want somebody mm. who has a 90-minute mm. RPA certification, you know, uh, behind him or someone who has had to go through 265 hours? If you go through all the five modules, I think you can also do right. individual modules. Yep. Yeah. But it shows the depth and and uh, variety. Like, so you've got a combination of, you. Go, it's a virtual channels, it's programs, it's tests and mini projects where they get to showcase how they have automated their processes for you to, you know, get that certification. But more important is that I think this Tudama is, is an emerging field and according to Bill, this will give you a future-proof career for about 10 years. I said, is this, because mm. parents sometimes ask us, like we're mm. tech journalists, what's a good future-proof career for my kids? And I get that question already. So I, I always say going to analytics, you know, big data and you're safe or data science right, at right. a higher level. But I think RPA is definitely an emerging field where, and you'll be working with bots, right? So this gives you Bill Taylor, who's, who's deep in this, says it's at least 10 years. Mm-hmm. you know, job security or being in a hot job field, right? And then you evolve. La. The reality is all of us have to evolve. For me, what I love about this is that they position Malaysia as the center of excellence and the RPA experts will serve serve the region. And I think, I know there's only, this is the first in Southeast Asia. I think it's even the first in Asia because they mentioned they've got one in Europe mm-hmm. and, and one in the US. So it's great opportunity out there. I think there's, and also they mentioned that Bill mentioned that those who have RPA certification have told him that they can command about 10, 15% more per hour as contractors, right? Yeah. And this is the UK experience. But the point is, this is a valuable, you know, a, a profession or skill set to pick up. Mm-hmm. And it, it looks good. Like, so I'm excited to see. And, you know, I think that uh, uh, Sumit said that, hey, ask me this question two years from now as to what our headcount is. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm hoping to tell you that it's way bigger now and that we've got, you know, 500 RPA experts, you know, based out of Kuala Lumpur serving the whole of Asia. So it's, 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 it's a good win for, for Malaysia and, and the Cap Gemini's, you know, they're not doing anybody any favors, right? They think Malaysia is a great place for them to further build this emerging field of expertise. And yeah, there's a lot of opportunities and all fresh graduates out there, if you're interested, you know, head on, send your resume down to the inbox of Cap Gemini and, and see whether they call you up, man. <laughs> I mean, I mean, certainly yep. from from just from an educational point of view, yep. like you you said, like people always ask you what what courses yeah, my yeah. kids should take. I think I think what's what's interesting is that there seems to be, it looks like a contradiction by the start. Mm-hmm. Okay. So on the one hand, you have people say you got to get the kids read, involved in STEM, you got to get them as scientists, engineers, yeah, yeah, programmers, yeah, yeah, so that yeah, they can help build these enabling technologies of the future. Yes. But then you have this other side that says, no, 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 these kids actually require creativity, they need imagination, yeah. they need to be able to do it's design. Steam, not STEM, right? Yeah, STEAM. Yeah. And, and the, the idea is that, is that, right, now that the, the repetitive tasks are done by robots, yeah. you're now, as, as you said, right. you move up to higher value tasks, yeah. and do things that robots yes. at the moment don't do well. Right. Yeah. But I, I, I don't see it as a contradiction okay. because, because I think... Uh, a company like Capgemini wants uh, STEM guys to come in and help yep. implement these projects. Yes, yeah, yeah. But the people, the staff who then will have robots and automation take over their mundane yep, jobs, yep. they have to step up. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, it's and a given. That, uh, that's and, a given. If anyone doesn't want to, then they've got no place in the workplace of the current or of the future, right? You 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 got you have to face reality. Yes. I cannot accept that. I don't accept that people say they don't want to change. You have to change. Yes. Employers in the first place brought them in because they had a skill set that they could use, right? And now that that skill set is becoming replaceable and, and obsolete, you have to move up. You have a responsibility to yourself, to your family who depends on you. Or, or you know, I think that's a, that's a very poor excuse. Everybody just needs to to wake up and say this is the world we live in, whether you like it or not. Yeah. And and actually, in a sense, you still so you can 
can you can step up okay. by being a better scientist yes. and work on the technologies that do this, or you can step up by being more creative and providing value yes. to your yeah. to your either your company or the work that you do. Yes. In because now, you, like you said, you don't have to worry about doing this mundane correct, stuff correct. anymore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And but actually, uh, one point that they, they did make is that uh, when they, when you talk about trainers that come into this Capgemini okay. uh, program? certification program, uh, okay. it's not just. Uh, programmers it's not uh, just tech yeah. people it's actually people Very who can point. understand yeah. the processes of these yeah. companies yes. if you're a HR manager you understand yes. where that you Correct. need to automate the yes. system yes. they need these people in yes. to be able to, to to provide a better automation yes. So sort of like to train the pro- the bots to yeah. the programs to do it more effectively. Right. So you are directing the bots, right? Okay, this this task can be automated, and you you train the bot how to do it, right? So you're right. right. Yeah. So they know how the business works. When are we going to get our first robots in DNA? I know, man. I know. Right? We should we should <laughs> lead can, the way. Yeah. I can tell you the kind of mundane jobs that I want you. To <laughs> of course, well, yeah. Transcribing all those interviews we do, absolutely, man. Absolutely, yeah. That would be great. So we we'll look out for that. Send to the conference instead of me and record stuff, right? I can network outside while correct, the robot. Correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The conference from and me. send you the key key <laughs> highlights, right? Okay, send me or anything around AI, around process, around culture, yeah, around disruption. Okay, anyway, that, that was really interesting. Uh, we're gonna take a quick break and then we're gonna be back with G and and the interesting conference here in Singapore. Ever wondered what leadership is all about? Is it developed over time, or are people just born with it? We believe there is a science behind leadership, and we want to help you understand it. Take this journey with us as we hear from renowned leaders from all over the world over our range of shows tackling key spaces in different industries today. Leadernomics, the science of building leaders. Hello, welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Zof Azmi. I'm not Karamjit Singh because Karamjit has left the building. He's left us. He's left us. He's, I mean, the word suggested just now was abandoned. We're quite lost right now. Yeah. So. <laughs> this is the conversation you hear for the next 20 <laughs> minutes. We're lost. We don't know what we're doing without our glorious leader in place. Pretty much, yes. <laughs> but we're going to try anyway. Uh, uh, <laughs> you went to Singapore recently? Yes. yes, I was in Singapore and I was attending Dwen, uh, or rather that's short for the Dell Women's Entrepreneurs Network Summit. So that's an annual event. This is the 10th time it's happening. It's the second time in Singapore, I believe. So Dwen is a event where uh, women entrepreneurs around the world gather, network, uh, talk, share problems, and also attend keynotes and learn from each other into how to become better women entrepreneurs. So uh, one of the interesting things that they reviewed during Dwen this year was the Women Entrepreneur Cities uh, Ranking Index. So that's a... Uh, it's called We Cities, basically. It's a index that ranks 50 cities around the world to see uh, how well they foster growth for women entrepreneurs. How well does Malaysia and Southeast Asia uh, rank in all this? And uh, that's where it gets a little depressing because uh, for Malaysia, we are ranked 44 out of 50. And uh, actually, we fell places. We were 41 in the previous index. That was in 2017. So in two years, we fell about three spots to 44. Okay. And the it could be that everyone else moved ahead. Yeah, pretty much. Actually, that, that's that's what the uh, uh, that's, that's what they, they said. Actually, it's not because we downgraded. See, across the board, all cities are improving. It's just that some of them are progressing so fast that they're de- displacing previously higher members. And uh, you can see it clearly with Singapore. In 2017, Singapore was uh, very high on the board. I think they were eighth place. Oh, okay. And then they fell to 21. 
So uh, basically, for this index, uh, the top 20 do not feature any uh, Asian or Southeast Asian countries at all. I mean, I mean, it seems completely wrong to celebrate the fact that Singapore dropped more places than, <laughs> than we did. <laughs> no, no, no. no, I, no. Don't, I don't think this should be the takeaway from it. It shouldn't uh, be. So, so what is it? What is it that, we, that other countries are doing that, that countries in Southeast Asia are not doing? Let, let, let's get to the index first. Uh, basically, they, they rank cities based on five characteristics, right? So it's it's access to capital, access to technology, talent, culture, and markets. Mm -hmm. So uh, for what they found out, especially for, for Southeast Asian countries, is that uh, our biggest gap is the lack of access to capital. So it's uh, basically women not getting, uh, women entrepreneurs not getting money to fund their business to, now, to start. Is it specifically to say that women entrepreneurs finding much harder to get access to money than men? Or is it just across the board, it's just hard to get money? Basically, it's harder for women to get more money compared to men. Okay. Because uh, if you look at why San Francisco is uh, higher ranked, but I mean, San Francisco is the, the top city uh, when it comes to support for women mm. entrepreneurs. And uh, it's because they recently sort of make it much easier for women to access capital. Mm. And also they, 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 are, they are making serious headway and talks into this bro culture aspect when it comes to to, uh, so there's that two aspects, mm. right? This mm -hmm. is you call this bro culture, and yeah. I think um, I, I I sort of remember we would discuss this when we were on the radio station, uh, not the podcast, and there was this <laughs> there was this comment made that that uh, the guys sort of see like like entrepreneurs see each other as like bros, right? As right. Like, you know, as like brothers in arms, and mm -hmm. and as a result, uh, everything from the posture they take, the language they use, mm -hmm. uh, it was suggested that that sort of makes it a bit difficult for women to 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 step up, step up and participate. Yep. Um, I actually, I, I because I've not read the studies on it, so I I found that in itself uh, interesting. Uh, but is it also the case that, uh, and this was something that happened in America for a while, that when you put a man's name at at the bottom of a piece of paper, right? right. Uh, it, it's sort of, you're more likely to be given funds and everything compared, it's like just an attitude thing. Like if right, you see, right. see a female name at the bottom of the uh, uh, piece of paper, it's like, oh, well, I don't know whether we should take this seriously. Is that is that kind of very, very overt sexism still a problem? Um, it's not exactly something that was discussed during the, the summit, but um, I think what they... Um, sort of point out was more that the like even though you can say that it's improving like uh, like women entrepreneurs are taken more seriously that they are now being able to access more technology and they are able to sort of uh, like uh, gain more talent to help them but it's still a little bit of a stigma going on there that not only men uh, so sort of like how the industry wields uh, men entrepreneurs but also how women view themselves. Ah. So it's like, uh, you know, they, they still need to understand that, uh, you know, maybe you shouldn't be so conservative when you pitch. That maybe uh, they point out that men, like, uh, they tend to be more assertive when they sort of like, okay, this is the amount that we want. Rather, for women, they, are, they feel like maybe we shouldn't ask so much at the beginning that maybe we should sort this of... Is, this was actually said at the conference. This was yeah, there was something, something that was mentioned, yeah. Okay, I'm a little bit surprised. I mean, I mean, the other side of the coin is that in Malaysia, we have quite a number of women in, you know, um, 
quite high roles in to do with IT, right? The mm-hmm. the CEO of MDEC, for example, the last two CEOs of MDEC has, have been women and the right. Minister of Science and Technology is uh, herself a woman. So so it's not like we lack role models in Malaysia and, and still, you're saying it's still a, an issue. Yeah, but I think one of the, the things that the index points out was that when they, when they looked at the statistics and they say that, you know, uh, uh, at cities that sort of like drop in rankings or are in the bottom 10, which we are, mm-hmm. one of the correlations they can see is that um, there are not enough women legislators. So you can, we can say that we have role models. That's good. But at the same time, um, there are few um, who are, there are not enough women in legislative positions who are driving better policies and driving better initiatives to sort of make it more inclusive. So we're talking about whole ecosystem and environment now. And yeah, it's probably much. then something that affects many industries then. Mm-hmm. It's not just uh, IT specifically. Of course, yeah, entrepreneurship across the board. Across yep. the board. One, one thing then suggesting is that we should have more women in decision-making uh, roles on the government side of things, for example, right. or, or the policy side of mm-hmm. things. You also said that San Francisco, even being number one, mm-hmm. really has some way to go before it's... Uh, yeah, so I, I think uh, the thing to note that, that, that this is something that was uh, like um, sort of hammered down massively during the, the summit was that uh, you know, San Fran is it's still top-ranking, but if you look at their scores... Uh, because it, it, uh, each city is scored up to 100 points. And even though San Fran is the top, it's only scoring like 60 or so out of 100, which means that there's still a big gap there. There's, there's still, cities still need to improve tremendously when it comes to sort of their fostering support and growth for women entrepreneurs. All right. So uh, from Singapore, we're now going to move to Sarawak. I visited Kuching about two weeks ago. Uh, oh, great place. They, they have this annual meeting called IDEX, uh, right. I-D-E-C-S. And what happens is they, they tend to in, invite some very big thinkers and some very big case studies to, to come and present what they have learned to Sarawak. And this is all in an effort to drive Sarawak's digital transformation right. uh, into what they call a digital government. Mm-hmm. I, I would say, don't call it an electronic government. That's something <laughs> else. <laughs> Personally, you know, it's, for me, it's potato, potato. But, mm-hmm. but I, respect, I respect that they are trying to see that it's more than just providing services over internet. Right. It's a much more holistic thing. Uh-huh. So this year's uh, big guest was uh, Professor Michio Kaku. Hmm. You, I don't I know if you know that name. Well. He's, he's actually a, he's written many books. He's a futurist, and 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 I think one thing that was very very interesting was that Michio Kaku felt that the future was in things like nanotechnology right. and genetic manipulation, right. and as a result, artificial intelligence will also be very important because right. it's very hard to manage things on that scale with that kind of volume without uh, invoking some sort of AI to figure out how right. to do it properly. Um, and so he was really like, I mean, that kind of talk is really 30, 40, 50 years in the future and right. far beyond what Sarawak is looking at for themselves. But nevertheless, he turned around during the conference and he told the attendees, you know, he sees Sarawak as this huge rocket booster ready and waiting to take off. Mm-hmm. And, and on the one hand, it could be something that he says in every talk wherever he goes around <laughs> the world. It could be that. But the way he said the words, he was sort of trying to think of the words as he said it, and uh-huh. made me feel that he was actually very genuine in, in what right. he was trying to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, that Sarawak has an educated population. Specifically, okay. that Sarawak is at peace. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's no internal strife or conflict going on to distract right. them from the work of building. Uh-huh. Um, and that 
and thirdly that because Sarawak had had a, a very strong political leadership as chief minister that wants to bring Sarawak to the future right and um, gov- senior government servants that seem to understand what 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 is needed right and I, I mean and I, you must understand that many in the hall are civil servants themselves and mm-hmm. when Michio Kaku said that there was like this ripple of applause you know like uh-huh. sort of like uh, thank you for appreciating that our leaders have this <laughs> and it's, it's easy to be very cynical when you see these things and say this is just like oh man it's just like people patting themselves on the back and everything yeah. on this side of the conversation yes when the chief minister gave his speech he was very clear in where Sarawak needed to go mm-hmm. right um, that Sarawak needed to sort of shift over the digital right uh, because of the many benefits in increased productivity right. and accessibility because Sarawak being a very large state it's hard to provide the same level of service to everyone right but hopefully that if if you make everything digital, then at least you can sort of flatten it a bit. And, 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 and yes, very practically, yes, part of that problem is rolling out good quality internet access to the whole of Sarawak. Right. But, but that is all recognised. It's, not, mm-hmm. it's not, not recognised. Yep. And then you have the second part of the conversation is when you turn around and you look at the civil servants and the guys lower down on the ladder. Right. When I looked at them and the f- very, very few conversations I had with them, there mm-hmm. was this sense of, how are we going to do this? <laughs> this is what a conference like this is meant to do. It's meant to give hope, to make you go, yes, the broad direction, the vision is correct. Right. But there were also, for example, there was someone from Estonia mm-hmm. who, who came and talked about the Estonian experience. And okay. Estonia is like one of, if not in Europe, the world, one of the leading uh, countries that have managed to shift their government over to being one of these uh, digital or electronic okay. governments. And this was the point made over and over again. One of the things that made it easy was because Estonia has a relatively small population, mm-hmm. whereas Britain has like 60, 70 million people. Estonia right. has like on the order of millions. And, mm-hmm. and Sarawak itself has an on the order of 2.5 million, I think. So, right. so it sort of gives hope that it makes sense mm-hmm. that you want to do something like this in a small state like Sarawak versus a federal project, national project. That, right, that, right. That, you're looking at 35 million. Right. But do you think that's like an issue? I mean, because these days when you talk about digital transformation and uh, if you look at it in a corporate sense and uh, one of the concerns was that if you don't sort of like start out in a wholly like corporate wide level and then you sort of digitally transform uh, only specific segments, you sort of form silos. So your your point, it was precisely one of the things that one of the attendees stood up to ask about, this issue about silos. Mm -hmm. And in any IT project, when you're trying to basically join a bunch of disparate groups together, Mm -hmm. your fundamental question is like, how the heck are we going to take these 10 or 12 different groups and then somehow get them to integrate with one another? Now, to, to give you some sort of insight of how hard something like this is, mm-hmm. Estonia, who are considered the leaders, right? They started their digital transformation, as it were, back in 2001. Oh, wow. Okay. So that was like 18 years ago, right? Uh-huh. Only last year did they launch what they call their um, crossroads or X-roads initiative. And that's an initiative which takes all the data systems and all the systems in all the various ministries and put it on the platform where they Uh can all communicate with each other. Right. So it took 18 years to create a technical solution that made this sort of integration between the various ministries like 
simple. Right. Uh, and before that, they had kind of been building pipes and whatnot. You know, mm-hmm. they, they, they had these very local yeah. uh, integration and they were building pipes to go from this database to that database. And uh, I sort of imagine, um, he didn't say it outright, but I sort of imagine a very kind of MacGyver-like approach right. <laughs> to doing things, right? Yeah. Uh, and and this is basically this guy from Sarawak was asking this question like how do we do this? Mm-hmm. And the guy from Estonia says your leadership needs to be clear about what they want. Yeah, yeah, you know. And your working level groups need to be friendly enough with each other. You not play political games and and, and like have you know you have to meet up with each other regularly. Right. You have to discuss with each other what needs to be done. Uh-huh. Now. What the guy from Estonia didn't say, but I saw it, was that, that if you want to build a perfect solution straight away, mm-hmm. it's just not going to work, work fast enough. Right. So, so uh, certainly amongst many of the presenters, there was this sense of build it fast. Mm-hmm. And then if it fails, repair it, fix it, or rebuild it fast again. Right. <laughs> so, so I think to your question of like, how do you do this thing? You know, you got to look at it on a project by project basis. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Don't put in too much sunk cost uh-huh. into building a perfect solution. Uh-huh. It's almost better just build something that yep. has these two databases talking quickly, mm-hmm. and then uh, two or three years down the road, you say, "Oh well, this isn't going to work. We're going to have to add a third one." Yeah. But because you build it cheaply and quickly, mm-hmm. it will then at least show progress bit by bit. And you can always rebuild. I know right. the the old thinking in Malaysia used to be like we shouldn't do this because you'll waste money. Yeah, uh, you'll do this, and then it kind of works in the beginning, but then it doesn't work after two or three years, and then you have to sort of rebuild it again, right? Right. Well, the advice that was kind of given is that you have to be prepared that whatever you build will probably need to be relooked again. If you, uh, what's important is the big picture needs right. to be clear. Yeah, uh, the the technical side is actually a relatively cheap problem to solve it. So I, I guess like right now, can Malaysia as a whole see the big picture and ensure that well, we can digitally transform? We've been doing this work since 1996. Uh-huh. And it's funny you should ask me this question because I was a member of the cross-flagship integration team uh-huh. <laughs> back, back when MDC was doing flagships. Right. And I'm not really up to speed with where things are at the moment. But at least Malaysian government has mampu to sort mm-hmm. of oversee this sort of uh, thing. Right. But I can tell you that even then, and, and, and as an appreciation of how hard these things, things are, even getting a, a, like a data dictionary where everyone is calling everything the same thing, like right. name is Nama, right? Yeah, yeah. I, do you know how many genders there are in the Malaysian IC database? Oh, uh, I don't know. I would read get a two. Okay. Well, you have male and female. Yes. But you also have a third flag, ragu, uh-huh. where you're uncertain what right. gender it is. So, so things like that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it would be great if every, <laughs> right. if every database like understood that when you talk gender, you're kind of talking about these three flags, for example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it, and we're not talking about politics or mm-hmm. religion or anything. It's just just the way the the database was right. built. Now, in Estonia, if you need IC data, mm-hmm. you can't sort of redo your own database of IC information. Right. You sort of have to tap in and then access the part of the IC data, government IC database that's publicly available. Right. Uh, so, so that reduces that kind of problem. Of, and also, when, yeah. you ha- when you're forced to tap into the government database, mm-hmm. you kind of have to follow their format. Right, right. Which actually was 
now looking back after all these years of trying to force people to to put data formats together that this right. was perhaps the way to 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 do it mm-hmm. so can a country like malaysia do it of course a country like malaysia to do yep. it it's just whether there's the will to mm-hmm. to sort of force it through and i only talked about that one aspect of data consistency data format consistency right? yeah. i'm not talking about yeah the stuff like, yeah <laughs> yeah it's massive it's it's a lot of things to think about but but yeah like i said the 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 ideas that were presented in sarawak tended to be more of like hey just do something first right, right? because they say like if it takes you a year before you see something mm-hmm. then it's probably too long things right. will probably have moved on and actually i agree right i agree with that if it if it takes too long then all the planning that you did is suddenly like no longer uh, useful so trying better than inactivity coming back to what the conference in strawa you know the takeaways is that yes those few days by themselves they can be inspiring invigorating gives you new ideas gives mm-hmm. you a chance to network with people who've been through the journey before right but but uh, i talked to dr zaidi who's also the head of the strawa multimedia association i am confident that in his mind he's clear about what strawa needs to do okay. so they need to have for example a common electronic authentication system and mm-hmm. they it's called Strawa ID and they have that up and running and then they also need a common payment system digital so they have an e-wallet called Strawa Pay right right now you can make the argument we don't need yet another e-wallet mm-hmm. and yet on the flip side the fact that we recognize that that part is important and they chose to build one themselves instead yeah. of co-opting a uh, one that exists right. yeah. mm-hmm. so so at, at at least in terms of laying the framework laying the groundwork um, and getting citizens involved Uh, and he also said a little bit about the need to get more citizens to discuss their problems online mm. instead of uh, offline because right. when you do it on, online you get these online communities and right, these online right. communities can drive progress right you know right 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 it, it, it's like the difference between complaining about government initiatives in your coffee shop yeah <laughs> where no one's hearing but your coffee maker yes, yes. <laughs> and 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 yeah He does recognize, though, it's a really, really challenging task, and but he seems to be completely up to it. Okay, and that's really positive to know. That's it from G and myself. And the spirit of Karam. And the spirit of Karam. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Leadernomics FM, the science of building leaders.